Hebrews 9, starting in verse 15. Therefore, he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. For where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not a force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will indeed endure forever, brothers and sisters. I think generally all of us are fairly familiar with how a last will and testament works. Someone, while they're alive, puts down in a legal document how they want all their assets to be distributed after they die, and the will, it is in a sense not just a, it's not a living document. And what I mean by that is it only becomes in effect upon the death of the person who makes it. And this imagery the will of a will uh, is the imagery that the author of Hebrews is drawing off of today in our passage from Hebrews 9. This idea of a last will and testament is sort of the sermon illustration, if you will, that the author of Hebrews uses to show us how the benefits of the new covenant come to us, God's people. I always appreciate when a text provides me with an illustration. I'm not very good with sermon illustrations, so when the author of Hebrews gives me one to use, uh, I really appreciate it. So this morning's text is quite interesting. Since chapter 8 of the book of Hebrews, the author of Hebrews has been comparing and contrasting the old covenant, which in Hebrews is defined by the giving of the law, the sacrificial system, the worship system of the tabernacle, the Levitical priesthood, things like this, He's been comparing the old covenant with the new covenant. And his main approach in discussing the new covenant has been to show how it is different and how it is superior to the old covenant, to show how the new covenant accomplishes what the old covenant failed to do. And in that discussion, the author laid out four benefits of the new covenant, which the old covenant merely foreshadowed, but ultimately could not provide. And again, I thought as a review, it may be beneficial to uh, list what those four benefits are. First, the new covenant produces an internal change of heart. The old covenant law was written on stone tablets. It dealt with uh, external actions, uh, but it could not work an internal change. But uh, in the new covenant, God promises to put his laws not on stone tablets, but rather put it in the minds of his people and write it on our hearts. The new covenant gives internal renewal, internal change. Secondly, the new covenant promises us a better knowledge of God. Jesus, Hebrews 1 tells us, 
is the better, fuller revelation of God to us, his people. In the past, God spoke to his people through the prophets. Now he has given us his very own son as his full and perfect revelation of himself to us. Thirdly, the new covenant promises us a better relationship with God. No more are God's people told to stay away, as we saw last week. But now, the, now we are told to draw close to God with confidence. And more than that, through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, Christ is in us, and we are in Him. We have union with Jesus Christ, and this leads to a richer, fuller, more intimate relationship with the Holy God. And fourthly, the new covenant promises full and total forgiveness. Our consciences are truly cleansed. Every part of who we are, body, soul, heart, mind, is washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's these benefits, these promises of the new covenant that the author of Hebrews focuses on to show us how the new covenant is better than the old covenant. These benefits are how Hebrews draws a stark contrast between the old and new covenant. But our text this morning does something a little different. Instead of contrasting the old and new covenants, the author actually shows us a point of similarity between the covenants. He shows us something that both the old and new covenant have in common. And this point of contact between the old and new covenant the similarity between the two covenants is this. Both covenants required the spilling of blood to inaugurate. They required death. As we heard last week, the death of Christ, the spilling of his own blood upon the altar of the cross, is the very bond, the seal, the means through which the new covenant is inaugurated and upon which the new covenant is based. All the promises of the new covenant are secure in the blood of Christ. And this is why the author of Hebrews concluded our text from last week with verse 14 of chapter 9. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The precious blood of Christ is what has gained us the new covenant promises. This week, our text picks right up with that theme. And verse 15 says, Therefore, therefore, because Christ has spilled his blood and cleansed our consciences, therefore he is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance, since a death has occurred that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Because Christ has spilled his own blood and through that blood has cleansed us, Christ is the one who is mediator of this new covenant. And since it's the spotless blood, since he is the spotless lamb of God, is the one who serves as the go-between between us, sinful, fallen mankind, and the righteous God, we as his people will definitely, without a doubt, 100% receive the promised eternal inheritance. Christ's blood, Christ's mediatorial work on behalf of his people 
will not fail. Brothers and sisters, the Savior has not spilled his blood in vain. His blood will accomplish what it was intended to do. And our inheritance is secure. A death has occurred that redeemed us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. That is, a death has occurred that has redeemed us from our sins, our breaking the holy law of God. And that death is the death of God the Son. So we can be absolutely certain that our inheritance is firmly and securely ours forever. And it's in speaking of the death of Christ that the author will begin to draw upon this analogy of a will, a last will and testament, and show how the spilling of blood, even in the Old Covenant, was and is required for the inauguration of a covenant with God. But before we get to that analogy, before we see how the Old and New Covenants share this theme of blood and death, I want to ask you this. What is the inheritance that the author of Hebrews is talking about here. What is the inheritance we have in Jesus Christ through the spilling of his blood? We should probably take a moment and lay out the benefits we have in Christ, what our inheritance is. And the thing that I want us to see this morning is that our inheritance as the children of God is not just for the future. It's also for this life. We right now have begun to receive the inheritance, the benefits, the blessings of our inheritance in Christ. The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is part of our denomination's doctrinal standards, asks this question. It asks, what benefits in, in this life are shared by those who are effectually called? And the answer is, in this life, those who are effectually called share in justification, that's the first benefit. What is justification? It means that before the sight of the holy God, we are declared righteous and holy. It is just as if I've never sinned. We share an adoption. That's the second benefit. We heard this already in the book of Hebrews. We are now the children of the true and living God, given all the rights and privileges that children have. And then we share in sanctification. That is, we are each and every day through the work of the Holy Spirit being made more and more like Christ. We are growing in our holiness. We are enabled more and more to die unto sin and live unto righteousness. And then the catechism says, we also share in further benefits which in this life accompany or flow from them. What other benefits accompany or flow from justification and adoption and sanctification? Well, for starters, how about the peace and comfort of the Holy Spirit in this life? How about the privilege we have to be heard in prayer? The privilege to draw close to the throne of grace? The privilege we have to share in what we're doing right now the communion of the saints, to have true Christian fellowship with one another. There are countless blessings, countless benefits that we have in this life through our inheritance given to us by the death of Jesus Christ. But we know too that our inheritance is not just for this life, right? There's a part of our inheritance 
that goes well beyond the scope of our earthly mortal lives. And the Shorter Catechism lays those out as well. It asks, what benefits do believers receive from Christ at death? And the answer, the glorious, wonderful answer is this. First it says, the souls of believers are at their death made perfect in holiness. No more sin, brothers and sisters. It'll be gone forever. It won't even be remembered. Imagine being set free fully and completely for all time from our sin. Our souls will be made perfect in holiness. And we will, as the catechism says, immediately pass into glory. What could be better from being set free from the burden of sin? How about passing to the very presence of our Lord and Savior Himself? To behold Jesus with our own eyes. To see the wounds that purchased our salvation. To see His glory. To see the Savior of our souls face to face, no longer with the veil of sin between us. There is nothing more glorious than this. And our bodies, the catechism says upon our death, it says our bodies, still united to Jesus Christ, will rest in our graves until He returns, and they too are resurrected in glory. Eternal life with Christ in glorified Perfected bodies with glorified, perfected souls living in a glorified, perfected creation. This is what we have inherited through Christ, brothers and sisters. Comfort for this life and eternal bliss in the life to come. And how do these benefits come to us? They come to us through the death of Jesus this is where the analogy of a will comes into play. The author of Hebrews says in verse 16, for where a will is involved, death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death, since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Again, we understand how this works. We still use wills today in our culture. And generally speaking, I know there's always exceptions, but this is an analogy, <laughs> and it speaks to general practices. And generally, a will is only effective upon the death of the person who made it. But think about this analogy for a moment. It's as if the author of Hebrews is saying that in eternity past, God wrote a will. Again, this is analogous, but... I think it's giving us this picture. And in that will, he determined to make us his heirs. He determined to give us a grand inheritance. The inheritance we just spoke about. This is God's eternal plan and decreed will to redeem a people for himself and give that people an unimaginable inheritance. It's sort of like those movies Probably many of you have seen, there have been several of them made, you know, movies like King Ralph or Mr. Deeds, these movies where there's like this poor slouch, a poor slob who comes to find out that some distant relative has died and all of a sudden he becomes the heir 
of a grand treasure or the king of England or something like that. And it changes the person's life forever. This is what God has done for us. Poor slouches, wretches, as the hymn says, in our sin. And God comes along. And through the death of His Son, Jesus Christ, we come to find out that we have a grand, unimaginable inheritance that changes our lives forever. But in order for us to receive this inheritance, it would require a death. It would require the spilling of blood. A will only takes effect upon the death of the one who made it. And since God is the one who made the will, what was, what was required is the spilling of the blood of the eternal Son of God, Jesus Christ. This is why we say, brothers and sisters, that the new covenant is firmly planted and grounded upon and rooted in the blood of Jesus Christ. It's His death, the spilling of His precious blood, which brings us into our inheritance. Now, as I said, the author of Hebrews in this portion is not drawing a contrast between the Old Testament, but rather is showing us something both covenants have in common, that the spilling of blood is required to inaugurate the covenant. And this becomes his main point in our closing verses this morning. Verses 18 through 22 drive home the point that the idea of the spilling of blood is essential to covenants. And he uses the first covenant to show this. The author says, Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Now, this would have been more clear to the first century Jewish Christians to whom the book of Hebrews was written, because they would have seen firsthand the blood of the sacrifices in the temple during their lifetime. It's a little lost on us today. But what the author describes in this portion of our text is a massive amount of blood. Blood on everything. When the first, the old covenant was inaugurated, look at how much blood it took. Blood was sprinkled on Moses, the mediator of the first covenant. Blood was sprinkled on the people to whom the covenant was given. Blood was sprinkled on the book. That is the scroll of the law that God commanded Moses to write down. Blood was sprinkled on the tabernacle itself. Blood was sprinkled on the furnishings of the tabernacle. Everything and everyone was covered in blood. Kent Hughes in his commentary on Hebrews says that during the thousand plus years of the Old Covenant, there were more than a million animal sacrifices. So considering that each bull sacrifice spilled a gallon or two of blood, and each goat a quart, the Old Covenant truly rested on a sea of blood. During the Passover, for example, a trough was constructed from the temple down to the Kidron Valley for the disposal of blood, a sacrificial plumbing system. Why was so much blood spilled? The simple answer is because the wages of sin is death. There is a penalty 
to the sin and rebellion of God's people. And that penalty is death. And how countless are the sins of God's people that so much blood in the Old Covenant had to be spilled in order to deal with it. Doesn't this amount of blood impress upon you how grave and serious and deep our sin is? It should. That's the point of it all. All this blood in the Old Covenant, it really had two purposes, a twofold purpose. And the first purpose was to remind us of how deep our sin is, how far it goes, how grotesque it is. And when we remember that those sacrifices and the Old Covenant could never truly atone for sin, we should be absolutely shocked and grieved to think that even all that blood, over a million sacrifices, gallons upon gallons of blood, could not atone for one single sin. We sang this morning, there is a fountain filled with blood. And apparently, that hymn, has had an interesting history in the church because there were many and there may be many today who feel that that hymn is nothing more than morbid and gruesome to talk about swimming in a fountain of blood. And the other day I was sharing with my wife Heidi what I was reading in preparation for the sermon and I noted to her how many people felt that that hymn was just so disgusting and so morbid and gruesome, and Heidi had the best response to me. She said to me, well, our sin is morbid and gruesome. And that's exactly right. That is exactly why the Old Testament sacrificial system was a sea of blood. Because our sin is morbid and gruesome. All of that blood stood as a reminder to the people of God of just how grotesque and gruesome, how terrible our sin and our rebellion and our breaking of God's law truly is. Sin is a big deal. But the other purpose of all that blood in the Old Covenant was to point us towards Jesus Christ, the spotless Lamb of God, who would ultimately, through the spilling of His once for all time, perfect sacrifice, take away our sin forever. Christ's blood is the fountain in which we now swim. Christ's blood is the means through which, as we sang this morning, we lose all of our guilty stains. We, sinners, when we are plunged beneath the flood of Christ's precious blood, are truly cleansed. The first covenant was inaugurated with blood, gallons upon gallons of blood sprinkled on everything and everyone. The new covenant, that too, was inaugurated with blood, not the blood of animals, not millions upon millions of gallons of blood poured out over the course of over a thousand years through countless animal sacrifices. Rather, the new covenant was inaugurated through the sacrifice of one man, through the four to five liters of blood that were in his body, through the once offering of himself on one bloody morning 2,000 years ago, the new covenant was inaugurated by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, 
the eternal Son of God, God Himself in the flesh, who emptied Himself of His heavenly riches and came and tabernacled among us for one purpose, to spill His blood. And His blood, His sacrifice, is the sacrifice that has truly taken away all of our sin. Have you plunged yourself beneath the flood of Jesus Christ's blood, the spotless Lamb of God? Have you, by repentance and faith, washed yourself in His precious blood? If you do that, all your guilty stains will be removed and you will become an heir of an unimaginable, life-changing inheritance as a son or daughter of the true and living God.